So do you remember the first time that you realized that you needed glasses? Now, there may be some of you who are blessed with 20-20 vision, and you have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, and if so, you're the rare group. You'll just have to use your imagination, I guess. Um, but for the rest of us, uh, who I think are the norm, uh, there was a moment when suddenly you began to realize that you needed glasses. Uh, maybe you're a junior higher this morning, and, uh, and, it, and for you it was in school, and you were sitting in class, and you began to realize that you were squinting harder and harder to see the front of the room. I was going to say uh, squinting harder and harder to see the chalkboard, except uh, you probably don't know what a chalkboard is. But uh, you, were, you were trying to see the front of the room and the data projector, and you couldn't. Uh, or maybe you're not quite a junior higher. Maybe you're a little bit older than that. And uh, you still remember the time when your arms weren't quite long enough for you to be able to read a book. You know, you know what I'm talking about? When you slowly realized that you needed those bifocals. Um, when that moment sunk in that your perception wasn't as clear as it, as it should have been, and you needed something to correct your vision. Um, I, I don't have to work hard to remember that moment. Uh, all I have to do is take my glasses off, and you all just disappear. I have no idea who's here when I take my glasses off. I, my eyesight is so bad without my glasses, I can't read my Bible or see you from, from right here. And when I put them on, suddenly everything comes in focus, and, and, my, and I can see clearly. My, my perception is, is back. Um, not seeing clearly can be anything from a minor inconvenience to a major danger, right? Uh, it can be something that's annoying, and it can be something that's life-threatening, depending on where you are and how badly your eyesight is. Um, I want us to think today about a different kind of perspective than eyesight, though, but still one that we might need to get sharpened. Uh, I want to preach to you a message today um, about our perspective on wealth. And today what I'd like to do is to urge you to adopt God's perspective about wealth. Uh, wealth is not a topic that uh, you have probably heard much from this pulpit. Uh, I know uh, a couple weeks we had Jim Rickard uh, who, who came and did some things. I know when we were in the book of, of Matthew, uh, there were some uh, sermons because there was money in there, but you probably haven't heard a lot about, about wealth from this pulpit. In fact, if you had like a sliding scale and you had a Creflo Dollar asking for $65 million for his personal jet on this end of the scale, and you had don't say anything about money on this end, we've probably been a lot more on on the don't, don't say anything uh, kind, of, kind of end. And uh, I've been asked specifically to speak on, on this topic. Uh, Pastor Scott asked me if he would do it, if I would do this. And uh, really just a couple reasons. Uh, one, I'm in the middle of the fi finances class in Sunday school, and I've been enjoying doing that. So I'm, I'm already kind of in the, in the financial mode, and I've enjoyed teaching that. Um, and I hope, I think it's been a good class to, to this point. Um, we also don't like to take a lot of breaks in our regular exposition, and so because I'm preaching today, uh, Scott is down teaching a uh, Doctor of Ministry class. In fact, he's preaching this morning, and uh, this is great because he gets to preach this morning to all of these doc, um, doctoral students, and then they get to sit around and talk about his sermon um, and how, how well it went or didn't go. So this is, I mean, he's, he's really in the hot seat this morning. Um, so, uh, so while he's gone, we just thought instead of breaking up uh, taken another opportunity, we can take this one. And, uh, and really, we, we started having a discussion as an elder team a couple weeks ago because we had a meeting, and one of the things we did in that meeting was uh, look at some financial statements. In fact, we looked at kind of the last four and five years uh, all together, and we noticed something that was kind of surprising to us um, as we began to evaluate. And, and essentially, we realized that in, in about the last five years, um, our giving to the general fund has been almost identical from, from year to year. Um, to the month, even it's been it's been almost identical, and um, 
and the reason that gave us a little bit of pause is because our attendance has not been identical in the last four or five years. So while giving has done this, attendance has done this. And so we started to ask ourselves, you know, why can that be? And, and obviously we can think about, uh, you know, maybe the, the building's in there. And, and obviously uh, we're, we're hoping that the building is over and above giving, but it probably does have an impact on our, on our general giving as well. Uh, but we also begin to ask ourselves, is, is, is maybe some of the dropping the ball on our end where um, we haven't, we haven't pointed to enough scripture. We haven't, we haven't talked openly enough. Um, and so this morning is, is a little bit of a, a correction to, to some of that. And, and we realize that, for instance, giving is only one part of how you um, steward your wealth, right? That's only one component of the resources that you have is giving. And really, your wealth is only one component of your discipleship to, to Christ. And yet, it's an, it's an important one. And I think it's possible that we can get our perspective about our wealth um, out of whack. So Basically, today is going to be kind of like going to the eye doctor. And, and my prayer is that even right now, you'll be asking the Holy Spirit to do any adjusting that needs done. Uh, maybe it's not major work that needs done. Maybe they're just uh, some things that you need to see a little more clearly that will help you adopt God's perspective on wealth. And so we're going to let 1 Timothy 6 um, be what points us to God's perspective. And so I want to read 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. This is God's word from 1 Timothy 6. In verse number 17, it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So I said our big idea today is to adopt God's perspective about wealth, and, and I use that word adopt intentionally. Um, one, because I like saying the word adopt any chance I have, right? Uh, but uh, the, the word adopt is a, is a healthy one for us because when it comes to a perspective about wealth, uh, God's perspective is not something that we naturally have, that we innately have. It, God's perspective on wealth is something that we have to choose to join his perspective instead of our perspective. Um, we, have to, we have to commit to it. We have to say, I'm going to adopt. I'm going I'm I'm to take this perspective that wasn't mine, and I'm going to make it mine. And it needs to be God's perspective. And, and so obviously our concern uh, is, is not to say, um, what does the church think about money? Um, what does Pastor David think about money? Our goal is to say, what, is, what does God tell us about our wealth and what's his perspective? Because we want his perspective to be ours. And so I want to show you from this passage four prescriptions for a clear perspective on wealth. All right, four prescriptions for a clear perspective on wealth. The first thing we're going to see when it comes to what God would tell us about our wealth is that we should not be arrogant about our wealth. Number one, don't be arrogant about your wealth. Verse 17 says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Now, uh, it's possible that only four verses into this, I have already lost some of you um, because it says, as for the rich. And, uh, and there's probably a bunch of you that are going, yep, nope, that's not me. He's preaching this message to somebody else. Um, but in reality, uh, I think when we, when we think about the concept of riches and, and poverty, um, we ought to all realize that just the fact of our even um, American lives and, and what we think of as normal American life, we are incredibly rich, right? Um, when, when Jesus said what it took to be content, 
what, what did he say? What did he say should be enough for you to be content with? He said, as long as you have food and what? A nice, a nice big house. No, wait, he didn't include houses in that. He just said food and clothing, right? If you have food and clothing, with that you should be content. If that's the measure of what you need and riches are anything above that, then we're all incredibly rich because not only do we have more than enough food, um, than what we need. We have more than enough clothes. We also have houses, and we also have computers, and we have cars. And we have all these other things. In reality, um, when we think about riches, we are all incredibly rich from a, from a wealth standpoint, from a possessions standpoint. Uh, I, I think I probably shared that with you before, that, um, you know, not in a, not in a, like, arrogant way, but we've tried to teach our kids, you are rich, not so they walk around going, oh, I, I'm rich, but we want them to know you have wealth beyond what a lot of the world could even imagine. Um, even in studying for the financial class, um, I, I did a little bit of research, and on uh, CNN, on their, on their money channel, um, the, the average American income, uh, the average net worth, rather, average net worth has America at number three, um, and just about 50% of the world's millionaires are in America. Um, and a solid 50% of people that, have over, that are worth over $50 million are in America. We live in a culture that is very affluent. Um, we're used to having enough. We, we have almost never, and, and I would be surprised if any of you said there was a time in your life when you wondered if you'd have enough food for that day, right? We are extremely rich. You've probably never gone um, without the clothes that you needed to face whatever weather you were in. We are extremely wealthy. And so when it says, as for the rich, I think that all of us need to include ourselves in this verse. Um, and we, none of us get an exemption because we're not as rich as somebody else that we know. That's usually how we use the term rich, right? Comparatively, I'm not as rich as, as such and such a person. The reality is, I think we all fit in that fourth word, as for the rich, right? He says, as for the rich in this present age, you notice that Paul is already affecting our perspective about, about riches. Notice he says, as for the rich in this present age. That's just a subtle little dig. It's, it's just here. It's just right now. That, that's all it is. But as for those who are rich in this present age, there's a reminder there that there's a whole coming age, and you may or, not, may or may not be rich in it. But here's what he says. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Right? He uses this word charge as the idea of exhortation, and that's why this message even is set in terms of an exhortation, because that's what Paul told Timothy that should be done for those who are rich. This is the, the fifth and last time Paul uses this word charge in the book. Um, in chapter 1, verse 3, he said his charge was, he wanted, he wanted Timothy to charge people to not teach any different doctrine. Uh, in chapter 4, verse number 11, he said, I, I, I want you to command and teach all of those things that he had listed in chapter number 4. In chapter 5, verse number 7, he said, I want to give you a charge about caring for widows. Um, in chapter 6, verse number 13, he said, I want to give you this charge to keep the faith, keep on believing. And now he comes to this last charge, and here's what it is. Charge the rich not to be haughty. So that's our first point. Don't be arrogant about your wealth. The reality is that it's a temptation for those of us who are rich to think that our greater monetary wealth means that we ourselves are greater in worth or value. And we think our more money makes us more valuable or makes us more important. And arrogance is so easily the natural outcome of having a lot of things. I don't think I have to work too hard to, to make that point. It is very natural for wealth to lead to arrogance. Um, 
you know, there's tons of even common expressions we, we use about the people that have their nose up in the air because they're better than everyone else and they have more possessions than everyone else. Um, I don't know that this isn't entirely true, um, but have you ever noticed, and, and maybe this is just my own perception that's colored, you know, it's, it's, it's affected by my own, by my, my, my own view of things, but have you ever noticed when you're on the road, um, basically, if you see a Range Rover, and I haven't checked if there's any Range Rovers in the parking lot, nothing wrong with uh, owning a Range Rover, right? But if you're on the road and you see a Range Rover coming, you probably better just get out of the way, right? Because in my experience, the people with the nicest vehicles or expensive vehicles, they're the ones that are going to cut you off. They're going to drive past you. They're going to be really fast. They're going to drive like they own the road. Now, again, maybe that's just, I don't know, maybe I want their vehicle. I don't know. But I probably don't notice when like the Ford Escort cuts me off. Um, But I do notice when it's a really nice car, right? And and, you know, you start to think, I mean, who does this person thinks that they own the road? Like, it's theirs by virtue of them having a nicer car than mine. Um, so that might, be, that might be overblown, but you still know the concept of someone that has a lot of wealth and that's gone to their heads. It's affected their view of themselves to the point where they now have an attitude, and it's an attitude of arrogance. And, and so the first charge Um, that Paul says that that we should give to ourselves who are rich is really how we view ourselves. The second is going to deal with how we view our things, but the first one is how we view ourselves. And so God's perspective on wealth is that wealth can actually distort how you look at yourself. That's how powerful wealth is. When you have possessions, possessions, when you have things, you can actually start to look at yourself in a wrong way, in an arrogant way, in a way that puffs yourself up, in a way that doesn't match reality. Again, riches don't naturally tend to lead us to humility. Uh, Romans 12.3, Paul said something very similar. He said, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That's a good rubric. When it comes to thinking about yourself, we shouldn't view ourselves through the lens of what we have. We should view ourselves with sober judgment. That has the idea of sober-mindedness, of right thinking. You should think of yourself with, with a right kind of thought, right? And, and really, the, the ultimate humbler for all of us, when, when we think about ourselves instead of arrogance, the ultimate humbler for us as Christians ought to be the cross of Jesus Christ, right? The cross is the ultimate humbler. The cross tells you that you are so lost that you can't save yourself. The cross tells you that you're a sinner and there isn't anything you can do about it. The the cross tells you it doesn't matter how good of a person you are or how hard you try, there's no way you can get yourself to heaven. That's a sober assessment. That is a humbling assessment. So even within the gospel itself, there there is a humbling factor to the cross. Whereas within wealth, there can be this arrogance inducing factor. And so Paul says what what we need to charge those who are rich, and that's us, is to not be haughty, to not be arrogant. Don't let your possessions change how you think of yourself and cause you to be arrogant. So that's our view of ourselves, but Paul also says we need to be careful that our wealth doesn't, uh, or our view of wealth is not just changing ourselves, but also our view of, of the things that we have. Notice what he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be ha- haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Because wealth can change how we view ourselves, and it also can change how we view things to the point where we view things as our hope. We set our trust in our things. So the first point was don't be arrogant about your wealth, and the second point is don't trust in your wealth. 
don't trust in your wealth. Notice what it says. It says, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Isn't that an interesting phrase, the uncertainty of riches? It says, don't set your hope, and it could have said, don't set your hope on riches, right? But it says, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. There again is a perspective on wealth that says, wealth is not something that is enduring. It's not something that lasts. So why would you latch your hope? That idea of set your hope is to be fully confident. Why would you be fully confident in something that is uncertain, all right? If you had a choice to walk out either into some quicksand or to some cement, what is the obvious choice? Your, the obvious choice is step on the thing that's certain. Step on the cement, don't step on the quicksand. That's essentially what Paul is saying. Don't set your hope on something that's uncertain, something that's shaky, something that doesn't have substance to it. Set your hope on something that is sure. So don't trust in your wealth. Riches are uncertain. And again, there are so many illustrations that, uh, that we can use, both biblical and practical, that sh- we should all be agreed that riches are not something that endure. Uh, you think about the rich man in Luke 12. Uh, if you want, you can flip over there. I think this is a great um, illustration just from uh, within Jesus' teaching about a rich man. Luke 12, 19 through 21. I think as soon as I start reading it, you'll know exactly what this story is. Jesus told this parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. All right? Now, uh, this is a great parable for a lot of reasons. One, it says uh, this rich man, again, we ought to be able to identify with him because this guy is a farmer that had a really big crop, right? We ought to all be able to identify with a farmer that had a really big crop. He says, there was a land of a rich man. It produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And notice what else he'll say. Notice, notice how his things are affecting his perspective about himself. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get more. I'm going to get more. And also I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. Right? I think that's a, the quintessential description of a guy who set his trust and his riches. Right? I, I don't have anything to worry about because I have all this stuff. I can relax. I can eat. I can drink. I can be merry. And the reason is because of my things. His wealth is now becoming what his hope is in. But of course, you guys know what's about to happen. In verse 20, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Riches are uncertain, and they don't last. There's a proverb in Proverbs 23, 5, says, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. That's what riches are. Riches aren't something sure for you to bank on. They're something uncertain for you to be wary of. That's a biblical perspective on riches and on wealth. And it might happen in really big ways if you want to look back historically to to things like the Great Depression, where people lost everything that they owned in the blink of an eye. Um, it can happen with your possessions um, a lot quicker than that when suddenly uh, a house fire happens and you've lost the things that are precious to you. Um, when you lose a job and after several months, uh, your wealth is gone as, you, as you've tried to live to sustain yourself. 
Wealth is something that is temporary and not something to be trusted. Um, there's a great story about John Wesley and, and seems to really be, be true, uh, the story about an account where uh, one day a, a man who was distraught, and he came, and he came riding up to John Wesley, um, and he was shouting, and he said, Mr. Wesley, something terrible has happened. Your house has burned to the ground. And just like that, Wesley heard that his, his wealth, his possessions, he just lost a lot of it. His house is gone. And this, of course, in a day when they had way fewer possessions than, than we have. And, uh, and it said that Wesley stood there for a minute and thought about it, and then he said, no. The Lord's house has burned to the ground, right? He had, a, he had a different perspective. Well, it was God's house to, to start with, and now God's house has, has burnt down. That's a healthy perspective of somebody who wasn't putting their hope on the things that they own. So, so again, we're trying to adjust our perspective. We're asking the Holy Spirit to look at our own hearts. So, so can I ask you, is it, is it possible that you've been putting some trust in your possessions. You've been putting some trust in your wealth. And it's subtle, and it doesn't happen with, you know, you're not trying to, but all of a sudden you start to notice that your hope is really on the things that you earn or the possessions you have. You've started to enjoy them to the point that you can't imagine life without such and such a thing that you own. That's a sign that you're beginning to put your trust in your possessions. The thought that if I didn't have this, my life would be unhappy or ruined means that you have now set your trust on something other than God to bring you happiness and joy. So let me ask you, do you have a clear perspective? Have, has wealth changed your perspective of yourself that now you're arrogant? And, and has wealth been enticing to the point where now your trust is in it? Because our third point this morning tells us that there is a better place for us to trust than in our wealth. We're looking at, at four different prescriptions for a clear perspective on wealth. The first one's was don't be arrogant about your wealth. The second was don't trust in your wealth. And the third is trust in the God who gives wealth. All right? So notice what he says, in, again, still in verse number 17. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but here's the big contrast. Set your hope on God. God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Set your hope on God. I want to encourage you this morning. Set your hope on God. Do you see the three qualities of a God you can trust right here in this passage? Do you, do you see them? Notice, notice a God that you can trust. It says, set your trust in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. One quality of a trustworthy God is that God is the provider. It is God who richly provides you with everything to enjoy. God is the provider. The reality is that your wealth is not providing for you. God is. But isn't it easy for us to, to make that switch and all of a sudden we start looking at the gift instead of the giver and we start thinking that our wealth is what's giving us the kind of life that we have. No, God is the one providing for you. Uh, not the job that you have, not the income we have, not the, not the nice, comfortable lives that we have. That's not what's providing for us. God is the one providing for us. So are you able to enjoy great things? Are, your, are, are our families allowed to live in comfort and ease? That's God's provision, not our wealth's provision. And we need to get that straight or we end up worshiping the wrong thing, right? Because what we think is providing for us, that's the God that we will serve. And if you think your riches are what's providing you your life, you will inevitably start to make them an idol. You'll start to worship them. So set your hope on God. So he's the provider, God's the one providing. Notice that he's not just the provider. Notice that he's a generous provider. It says he richly 
provides us with everything. All right? uh, it's interesting, Paul here says, who richly provides us. Right? Uh, he could be doing one of two things. He could either be including himself in the rich category. Right? He provides us, us rich people, with all things to enjoy. Or he could be making the broader point that God provides for everyone, rich or not. He provides us all with everything that we need. God is a gracious provider. Either way he's saying it, notice that he says God richly provides us with everything. Right? That's, that's a comprehensive statement about the graciousness of a God who is a generous provider. He richly provides us with everything. Right? That's pretty total. God is a generous provider. So we can see that God is the provider. We can see he's a generous provider. But notice also that God is the gracious provider because it says God is the one who richly provides us with everything. And then look at those two little words right at the end of verse 17, to enjoy, to enjoy. Isn't that a gracious addition to this verse? God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Look, you don't have to walk around in guilt or, or in disappointment that God has given you things to enjoy. This was his plan. God has richly given you things to enjoy. You don't have to be down in the mouth and, and woe is me because God has allowed you to have a certain lifestyle. He's given it to you to enjoy because God is a gracious giver. Now, for some of you, even just saying that, um, especially if you're like me, you're already, you're wanting me to caveat that, right? You're wanting me to say, yes, but we have to talk about careful budgeting, and yes, we need to talk about stewardship, and we need to talk about all these other things. Don't just say, God gives us everything to enjoy. We need all of the other stipulations. Um, I, I think often we are more on the, we've got to be rigid and stiff about this, and we forget the enjoyment part of what God truly intends. So, we're not going to get to the caveats yet. I, you just need to let that sit on you. God has given you the things he's given you so that you can enjoy them. So are you worshiping God with the wealth that he's given you? With your possessions, are you enjoying them as a wonderful gift from your good God? Because if, if we look at wealth any other different way, then we're robbing worship away from God who was the giver. Don't rob God of the joy of giving to you. Look, those of you who are parents and you've given gifts to your children, you want your children to enjoy the gifts you give them. We've got a birthday coming up this month in our family. And, and well, next month. I'm already in, I'm already in next month. But uh, we, we're going to give gifts to our son, and we want him to be delighted, right? If you gave your son or daughter a gift, and they opened it, and they were like, oh, you'd be totally disappointed. You want them to, you want their eyes to light up. And you want them to go, this is so amazing. It's so wonderful. I thank you so much. This is the best Lego I've ever had or, you know, whatever it is. Um, look, God is giving you things and he wants you to enjoy them. It's not more spiritual for us to be down in the mouth about the things that God has given us. It's actually less spiritual because we're taking away our worship of God. And so um, while I'm thinking about it, and I don't know why I'm thinking specifically at dads, maybe because I'm thinking about myself, but can I ask you, are you modeling enjoyment when you spend your money, when you use your resources, 
all right? And Kathy's smirking at me, even right now, um, because I can still remember this conversation that she and I had, and maybe I've mentioned this to you before. Um, I still remember we were, um, we were sitting on a couch, and, and I, I probably won't get the wording exactly right, but it's one of those, like, marriage discovery moments. You ever had those when all of a sudden um, the person you love tells you something that's definitely true about yourself, and you had no idea it was true? Like, you lived all of your life. You know, I, 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 had, I lived for you know, 30 blessed years not knowing this about myself, and all of a sudden my wife made one comment because we were, I don't know, we were having a discussion about money or something, and all of a sudden um, she looks over at me and she's like, why, why do you want to save money? I'm like, well, we save money to save money. <laughs> like, duh, it's, it's obvious. And, and she's like, do you want to do anything else except save the money? Like, is there anything else to it? I'm like, uh, what do you mean? Like, do you ever save money so that eventually you will end up spending that money? Do you ever see yourself spending the money that you're saving? No. No, we're, we're, sa- that we're saving the money. That's what we're doing. We're saving the money. And all of a sudden, there was this epiphany. Um, I save money because I don't like to spend money. I'm not saving because it's wise or because it's appropriate. Just I don't want to spend it. And all of a sudden, this reality came crashing into me, and I thought, that's true, all right? Uh, so look, uh, all of you, but my, I guess, like I said, I'm kind of thinking about dads. Um, can you worship God as you, as you pay your auto bill? Um, you have to take your car into the mechanic, and um, bless you mechanics, but I just hate paying that mechanic bill, right? And, and that's your attitude, and you come home, and you're like, oh, man, I can't believe we had to do this. Like, yeah, I just, I just, I just spent 600 bucks on the car, and, and it, that just ruined your day. Like, it just ruined your life. Like, I just had to spend all this money on this car, and you're upset, Right? Without stopping the process, God gave me this car. He gave me the money to pay for this car. As my wife would point out to me, actually, this is in the budget. Like, we budgeted maintenance on the car, so it's even like money we already had. Why are you having a problem with this? Because I don't want to, I have a problem with God is giving us richly all things to enjoy. Look, when your washing machine dies and you have the means to go get a new washing machine, then rejoice. Don't walk around mealy-mouthed because now you had to spend this money. Your wealth isn't yours. It's God's, and he gave it to you to enjoy. And you're going to enjoy a new washing machine, I promise you. Uh, So the point is, enjoy what God has given to you, right? So enjoy the wealth, uh, the possessions that God has given you. That's why he's done it, because he is a God who provides. He provides generously, and he provides graciously. He's given you things to enjoy. So maybe that's what it is for you today in this sermon. Maybe you just need that little bit of perspective when it comes to wealth, that wealth isn't something that we cling to. Um, Wealth is something that God has given us to enjoy, and you haven't been enjoying what God has given you. Well, let this message sharpen you in that one perspective. Um, Trust in the God who gives wealth, and he gives that wealth for a reason, and it's to enjoy what he's given us richly. Okay? One last point for us this morning. Uh, Not only should we not be arrogant about our wealth, and not only should we not trust in our wealth, we should instead trust in the God who gives wealth. So what does that look like? What does it look like to have your hope set on God instead of wealth? Maybe you've already been sitting there going, that's a great theory, but what about the practice? What does it mean to trust in God instead of in wealth? I I really think that what happens um, in verses 18 and 19 are really the description of what it means to set your hope in God. Um, It's kind of a string of commands that all connect to our possessions. Um, They're not main verbs like set your hope is, and so I think they actually fit underneath. But we're going to say our fourth fourth point is use your wealth in light of eternity. What does it mean to set your hope in God 
and trust him and not riches. It means that we, we use our wealth in light of eternity. Notice this staccato of commands, and they all flow out of having our hope set on God. Notice it says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. If you're a person, and, and that first part of that verse applies to you, as actually the whole verse, if verse 18 applies to you, then you're someone who is setting your trust in God and not on, not on your possessions, not on the things you own. Right? It says they are to do good. Um, I think that's not just in generally like everyone's supposed to do good. Right? Again, we're in the context of wealth and using wealth. You're supposed to do good with your wealth. Use it for morally upright reasons. We're supposed to do good. If you are using your money for good, it's an evidence that you're trusting God. You're trusting God's principle. You're trusting God's evaluation of this is what is good and this is what is bad. I'm going to give my money for what is good, right? That's a part of trusting in God. So to do good. And then it says to be rich in good works, right? That's an, that's an evaluation of, of what true riches are. Um, those who have a lot of wealth, they should also be people who are rich in good works. They should be doing good. We should be doing good works, and, and we should be rich in those good works. It would be a terrible shame for us to be rich in monetary things and poor in good works. Those things ought not go together. What ought to go together is rich in possessions and rich in good works. They fit together, all right? So do good, be rich in good works, be generous, all right? Be generous, the biblical expectation is that those who have ought to be giving, ought to be sharing, right? You mean think about the Ephesians description that, that we should be providing for our families, um, we should be with our own hands doing work to take care of our own needs, and if we have extra, that we can give to others. This is the biblical pattern um, of we, we do need to provide for ourselves, we do need to provide for our own needs. And yet we get so that we can be generous, so we can generously give to others. So are you, are you being generous? And I'm not just talking about one thing. I'm not talking about just an offering plate and giving. I'm asking, are you a generous person? Are you generous with the things that you own? So yes, generous with your money. But there's lots of ways to give besides just an offering plate, right? Are you generous in hospitality? Uh, are, are you generous with your other possessions? Or are you stingy with them? Are, are you willing to use your, your vehicles for, for kingdom work? Are, are, you, are you willing to loan your things to other people? Are you a generous person? Or do people think that's the stingy guy or girl who holds on to their things like this? All right? and, and I'm talking to all of you. I think generosity starts um, at a really early age. So kids, are you learning to be generous? Or are, or are you holding on to the things that are your prized possessions? And as a kid, as adults, we look at kids' things and we say that's not very valuable, but there are things that are really valuable to a kid, right? So, so kids, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a toy that it's your thing and you want to hang on to it. Or are you going to be generous with the possessions God has, has given you? Um, there is a marked difference between someone who has an attitude of generosity and someone who either gives begrudgingly or refuses to give at all. And this verse says that those who set their hope in God, will be people who are generous. Notice uh, the last um, little command in there, we're supposed to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous, and be ready to share, ready to share. That word share, um, we don't, I don't like saying a lot of Greek words from up here, but it's a word that you probably all know. It's that word koinonia, right? There's a, there's a church in Visalia called koinonia, 
It means fellowship, right? It means fellowship. The idea here um, is that we should be ready to koinonia. We should be ready to fellowship. Because inevitably, from the world's perspective, uh, there, there is class distinctions, right? People that have a lot of money like to hang out with people that have a lot of money and don't want to hang out with people who don't have as much money. And Paul's addressing this in the early church. That's, just, that's the same problem that they would be experiencing, the, the classic division between the haves and the have-nots. So what happens when uh, you're an early Christian and there are some people that are just outright slaves? Like they, they belong to somebody else, and in the same church you have those who are slave owners uh, or who have inherited a huge sum of money from rich parents. What Paul says is, you ought to be ready to fellowship. Our, our, our bank accounts ought never to be what determines how much fellowship we have with one another. Our relationship within a Christian church are, is not based on our same economics. It's based on our same faith, right? And so even in this church, if we have a disparity of, of how much people have, that, that is not what brings us together. It's not about how much money you have or how much possessions you have. The point is we share Christ in common, and, and that's where our unity comes from. And so, so he says you should be ready to share. You should be ready to fellowship. The classic struggle between the haves and the have-nots is eliminated by the gospel. Not because those classes no longer exist, but they're no longer the basis of our relationships. Any more than slave and free are the basis of relationships. Any more than male or female are the basis of relationships. All those things in Christ are are. Are, are, are minimized because who we are in Christ is what brings us together, not our ethnicity, um, not, our, not our social status, um, but what we have in Christ. So he says, listen, if you're going to set your hope on God, not on riches, then we should, we should do good and be rich in good works and be generous and ready to share. But all of those things mean that you're using your wealth in light of eternity. And I hope you'll be encouraged. But notice, notice how this ends. If, if we're going to live this way, Notice what is the result. You see verse number 19. Here's the result of living this kind of life. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. If you want to invest in eternity, then instead of having wealth be what's most important, it's going to be doing good and doing good works and fellowship. It's almost impossible for me to read these words without thinking of Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Did you think of them too? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Look, if you will do good and be rich in good works and be generous and ready to share because you set your hope on God, then what you'll be doing is storing up treasure as a foundation for the future. You'll be investing in eternal people and in eternal concerns, things that will last. Notice, that's what the, the product is. It's treasure and eternity. And, and notice the purpose. So that, why, why would we want to store up treasure in the future? Why would we want to be eternity-minded? So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Isn't it easy for us to think that our wealth and our time here on earth is what is really living isn't that the essence of worldliness, thinking about the here and the now, that it's what's most important? Uh, we hear things like live the good life, live the high life, live it up. All those things are very time-centered. Do it now. Enjoy this kind of life now. And what, and what the gospel reminds us of is that there is true, a true life 
and that life is not right now. In fact, what, what we get when we believe in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life, right? It's a life of a whole better quality than what you can have right now. It's, it's a life that will last longer. Uh, it's a life of more value. And so Paul is saying, what you want to do is invest in what is more valuable. Take hold of that which is truly life. Don't be distracted by what ends up feeling like, well, this is what life is when, we, when we're living in the here and the now. And if you're living in the here and the now, you are not living in what is truly life. You're, you're missing it. You're missing what is truly life. And the thing about our riches and the thing about our possessions is that they bind us to the here and the now. And they make us think about what can I have now or what can I save for tomorrow. And it's all about me and now and here. And, and what this prescription that we need is to turn our eyes from the here and the now to be thinking about eternity. Are you thinking about what you have in light of eternity? Are you using your wealth in light of eternity? Our good works must extend to our wealth. And we know that our good works won't save us, but they do demonstrate the reality of our faith. And so even how you use your wealth can validate your claim that you are a person of faith. You say you're a person of faith, and James says, then show me some works that will show that your faith is not dead. And that includes how we use our possessions. All right? The life that is to come is a life that is indestructible. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1 that, that our Savior Jesus Christ abolished death and he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Look, we don't know what true life is because of how many possessions we have. Life is not sweet and wonderful because of the amount of income you have or the things that you can buy. True life has come to light through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus says, whoever believes in him does not come into judgment but has passed from death to eternal life. You, you want to know what a better description of living the high life and living in the here and now is? A better description for that is that's death. That's death. That's not truly living so live for the true life, live for the eternal life. What changes our perspective about what life really is, is the gospel. Eternal life now becomes our most cherished life, and we can only have that through Jesus Christ. So I don't want anyone to leave here with your only thought being, yeah, I just need to manage my wealth better, and I, and I need to think about it better. But especially... If you don't have your trust in Jesus for salvation, I, I would never want you to say, I'm just going to try to be better with my money. I'm going I'm to give more, and then, and then I'll be, God will love me more, and I'll be more accepted with him. Listen, we cannot give away enough money to earn our way to heaven. We can't do enough good works because we have money to earn our way to heaven. The, the reality is that when it comes to our eternity, we are completely impoverished. We are the poorest of the poor when it comes to eternal life. And yet the good news in Jesus is that Jesus Christ was rich, and, and yet for our sake he became poor so that through his poverty we could become rich. Jesus abandoned the glories of heaven and lived a perfect life for you and for me. Can you imagine going from the glory of heaven? Think about, think about the the beauties of heaven, the possessions of heaven. Think about how wonderful it is to be there. And think about Jesus leaving that for a sin-cursed, filthy, dirty earth. Think about how much humility that was. Try to put that in, in human perspective. Think about someone that has a, has a beautiful house and, and, a, and a wonderful life, and they leave it to go be a homeless person under a bridge. 
And even that doesn't come close to what Jesus did for us. When he left heaven, became poor, when he even took on a human body, and how limiting that human body was, and yet he did it so that you could become rich, so that he could call you a son or daughter of God, if you would trust in his perfect life, in his sacrificial death, and then his resurrection from, from the dead. So even that element of the gospel ought to remind us of what true riches really are. So my appeal to you today is not just work harder at having a good perspective on wealth. If you're an unbeliever, there's no way you can do enough good perspective about wealth to get you to heaven. You need to trust Christ. And if you are in Christ, my encouragement to you is not have a better perspective on wealth so that God will love you more and you'll be a better Christian. Instead, it's because of what Jesus has done for you. Then let that overflow. Let it affect things like your wealth and your possessions and your view of yourself and your view of the people around you, your view of things. The gospel will end up touching every part of your life if you will just let it. So today, how are your, how are your glasses? Do you, do you need a, a new prescription or, or maybe you just got some smudges on your glasses and you need to wipe them off a little bit? You ever get smudges on your glasses? It's amazing how just a few smudges can really alter your perception through your glasses. And maybe you have some of those that, that you need to wipe off today. Let me, let me give you a couple application thoughts as we come to a close. When it, when it comes to um, Paul's exhortation that we not be haughty um, about our wealth, uh, number one, let me encourage you, fight your high view of yourself with the view that comes from the cross, okay? Fight your high view of yourself with the view that comes from the cross. Secondly, when you think about trying to apply um, not trusting in riches, ask yourself where your satisfaction is coming from. What, what is giving you happiness and hope? What do you fall back on for comfort, um, what is your hope set on? Because if your hope is on anything other than God, you found an idol that you need to root out. Number three, when you think about um, setting your trust in God when it comes to your wealth and everything else, let me encourage you to, to this application, be enamored with the faithfulness of God. You can see God's faithfulness as you look in your own life, and you can see it all throughout Scripture. He is a faithful God. You can trust Him. So if you want to grow in your trust of God, um, then let Scripture show you how faithful he is and be enamored with a God who is faithful. All right, the last thing we talked about, um, use your wealth in light of eternity. Um, I want to encourage you to think often of eternity. Um, we probably do not think about eternity enough, right? Um, follow Paul's admonition in Colossians 3 to set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are here on the earth. Think about forever and do it a lot. Um, because it's true that when you think of eternity, it will set where you are in the here and now in the right perspective. Where you are here and now is temporary. The riches that you have here and now are temporary. The life that you have here and now is temporary. It's going to end, but there is an eternal life to come. So think often about eternity. All right, I want to close um, with a final word from a poem. Uh, Kathy asked me on Friday if I was ready to preach today, and I jokingly said, no, I need some more snappy illustrations in a poem. And she said, I like snappy illustrations, but I can do without a poem. Uh, but uh, here's a poem anyway. It's from, uh, it's from John Piper's uh, Job. He wrote a whole poem on uh, the book of Job. And the end of the first chapter, he's reflecting on everything that Job lost. And he's reflecting on Job's suffering. And I just think it's an appropriate word, and it was stuck in my head. So um, this is from Piper. Light candle one and count the cost and ponder everything we've lost. And let us bow before the throne of God who gives and takes his own and promises whatever toll he takes to satisfy our soul. 
Come learn the lesson of the rod, the treasure that we have in God. He is not poor nor much enticed who loses everything but Christ. You are not poor, nor are you deceived if you will lose everything with, for Christ. But on the converse, if we would gain the whole world and yet lose our own soul, we would have lost it all. So how's your perspective? Do you have God's perspective about wealth? These are four prescriptions to help your perspective on wealth. Let's all pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word. Thank you that uh, it touches everything in our lives. You tell us how to think. Um, you tell us the right um, perspectives to have in life. And, and I pray that you would help me, and I pray you would help us as a church family, um, that we would pursue a biblical perspective of all things, uh, even in the sensitive area of wealth and the possessions we have. Will you please humble us in ways that we have been arrogant about our wealth? Um, I pray that you would show us ways that we have trusted in our own wealth and put our hope in it, Instead of trusting in you, we want our trust to be in you and in you alone so that we will invest in eternity and let that be what drives our perception and not the here and the now. So please will you help us to your ends. Adjust our view however it needs to be adjusted. Do the work in our hearts um, even as we go out from here. Um, we love you and we want to think your thoughts after you. So help us to those ends. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.